I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to a special episode of the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with the InsureTech Gateway. Regular listeners will know that I really rate today's guests and what they're trying to do for the market. I also find them really good company. They're fun, smart, infectiously enthusiastic, and are always bringing with new ideas. Every time I have a meeting with them, I come away with something new to think about. Listen on, and you will too. The InsureTech Gateway has been a pioneer in the InsureTech space, providing early-stage investment as well as licenses, insurance knowledge and industry support, and connections to entrepreneurs trying to put innovative insurance ideas into practice. It's just come through an important milestone. Its inaugural fund is maturing, and its second fund has now been raised. In a cooling tech investment climate, this is as clear a validation of the Gateway's business model as you'll need. My conversation with Stephen Britton and Richard Chattuck is valuable because it brings together everything the Gateway has learned from the cutting edge of insurance investment from the past six years. None of this is theoretical. This is all hard-won experience earned by the risking of real capital in the real world with real people. We examine what has worked and what hasn't and look at the emerging trends that are going to drive the successful insurtechs of the future. Richard and Stephen make a great pairing. Stephen has been on the podcast many times before, but Richard hasn't. Yet, it's Richard who will be familiar to many listeners, as he is an insurance lifer, with a high-profile and long and successful underwriting career, who has made the move to venture capitalism. Meanwhile, Stephen is an outside innovator, looking inwards to insurance. This is an excellent combination, and makes for a really relaxed, highly enjoyable and insightful listen. I'm pretty sure you'll find it both inspiring and useful. Enjoy the podcast. Richard and Stephen, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to be here, Mark. You've just completed a fundraise on a second fund. Tell us all about it. Stephen. I think what's more exciting for us is to have completed fund one than have started fund two. Because fund one, we validated a model that we started four or five years ago, which is that could we find a way of innovating at the early stage? And we created a model that had both a fund and a studio where people could come with ideas. And I think that the story of the launch of Fund 2 said that Fund 1 worked and it achieved what we'd set out to do and that we're ready and we've learned some new tricks for the next one. I would add there's a lot more clarity in the way we go about investing today than we did when we started Fund 1. We've learned a lot in that process and that we now have a fairer tailwind in terms of founders with exciting ideas who are great at execution are now knocking on our door, whereas beforehand we had to go out and look for them. Obviously, you don't get a second fund unless your first fund worked. So how's the first fund done? I presume you can't talk about numbers, but I presume it's been successful enough to get a lot of these people invest in the first fund to re-up and invest in the second one. Yes, we've got return investors who seem very happy with the world that we're showing them, this new world of tech innovation. I think from purely a fund investor perspective, I mean, we're early and we're relatively small when it comes to the VC space. So of course, we're going to have a very strong and and high growth fund compared to others being early, but also it's the other benefits, or should I say the other values you get from joining something that's early. I mean, we've seen businesses of founders who have come from completely different market spaces come to the space. And I think that's given insights to our partners in terms of the world that's going to be created for them in the next three or four years. The 50 European best insure techs that seem to keep winning the same awards, we've generally got five or six in the list. The portfolio, which were one or two people walked in the door going, I've got this idea, can you help? 
have now got 600 people working for them from the best universities in the world building insurtechs. To add to that, Stephen, I can certainly say that depending on the benchmark you use, we're either top quartile or top decile performing fun for our vintage. And probably the greatest endorsement is that our cornerstone investor has moved from fund one to fund two with a larger participation. So generally very happy with the way it's gone, very pleased with the investment into fund two and excited to get out and deploy the funds. You alluded to this earlier. Obviously, when you're going about building a second fund, what are you doing differently now? What have you learned over this five, six year journey with the first fund? What are the mistakes that you don't make anymore because now you know exactly how to go about these things or how to weed out those sort of potential errors before they happen, that kind of thing? How are you going about this second fund in a different way from the first, applying what you've learned? I think we have a greater focus on businesses that we see as socially impactful. It's easy to get distracted with ideas that might make quite good money but frankly are reinventing the wheel. And we would much rather focus on businesses that we think are socially important and impactful, address protection gaps, deal with climate change. Where we feel, and frankly, one of the reasons that I'm sure we'll get to later in the interview as to why I'm doing this, we can make a worthwhile difference to people's lives. And that's an important part of why we want to do this. Well, it's also that those are bigger opportunities than this incremental improvement idea, you know, so reinventing the wheel. So it's, you'd like to have a whole new type of bicycle that is like a flying saucer instead of a bicycle rather than just making the bicycle slightly faster and the sort of David Brailsford kind of Sky Sports team or the GB cycling team where you make it just marginally better and better and better and you keep winning gold medals because of that. You'd rather invent a whole new type of mode of transport, for example. Absolutely. And we're looking to, into those large white spaces in the future. So it requires an ability from us to identify what we think those spaces are going to be. But equally, I think what we're learning is the speed with which technology is evolving our lives is creating a constant stream of investment opportunities because there are new protection gaps arising insurers by their very nature have a large amount of inertia to evolve into those spaces. Presumably these new spaces are just going to be bigger anyway, rather than traditional PNC insurance. You try not to think that way is what I'm trying to say and hope I'm not putting words in your mouth. Is that right? One thing that's changed, and I think it's answering your question, is that shift from what we thought the market wanted us to give them, which was new lines of business. And what we're supporting are innovators who are creating breakthroughs. And breakthroughs can be, as Richard says, a, a social impact, a new measure. You know, are we changing people's lives? An insurance impact, are we significantly changing risk and the benchmark of risk for a category? And you can imagine in, in our space, there's a new metric every month, whether it be, are we reducing carbon? Are we increasing diversity and inclusivity in the industry? We're seeing ways in which businesses in a very short space of time can go from, I think this concept could be quite transformational through to validating it. And I think it's the moment of validation that's got us very excited about the potential of what we're doing. And we ask ourselves more questions when people come to see us is, can we make this breakthrough moment happen? Can we help them? As opposed to these guys need some money to test their idea out. We ask ourselves, can we help them? 
make that idea a reality or were you trying to always steer them towards something insurance-like or sort of dragging them back to insurance earth in some way or you're trying to sort of fire them off into the stratosphere i mean certainly when you're talking to social innovators they're really struggling sometimes for a revenue model they're struggling for an industry to connect with there's a lot of innovating in a vacuum in the social impact space and when they meet a group like us who can help fast track them into an insurance related revenue stream whether it be purely at a risk data level or whether they've got a really clever risk transfer model. They come to us and say, ah, finally, I can find a business model here I couldn't see before. So you can have something that has a social impact that changes the world for the better, but also makes profit and isn't a massively potentially empty but hugely potentially large market. I don't think insurers want to be seen as purely providing a risk transfer solution to their customers any longer. I think insurers want to be seen as a total risk solution to their customers, where they provide customers with the ability to understand their risk, to mitigate and manage their risk, and then maybe transfer some of that residual risk they're left with at the end. And that holistic total sort of risk framework, if you can provide that to your customers, you've got a much stickier, more valuable relationship than purely a risk transfer solution that becomes highly commoditized in the end game. So that stickiness is really valuable to insurers. And a lot of the solutions that we're looking at address the whole spectrum of the risk the customers are carrying. So it's much more sort of being really, really useful to the customer. And that relationship is all about their risk or just the way that they live their lives or the things that they do every day. And you're helping them to do those things better. And part of solving potentially problems there is insurance, but not all of it. That's more of a service. Absolutely. The innovators that come to us have this moment of revelation when they realize that the insurance market and the knowledge within it can help prevent and reduce risk as much as it can be a risk transfer solution. It's not obvious to them when they come to the sector. Richard. It's really great to be talking to you because I tried to broker you a risk about 30 years ago when we were all much younger. You've made this big change from being a very senior underwriting executive to becoming a venture capitalist. I'm sure a lot of the listeners want to know, what do you do now? What's your job today? What's this core role that you've got? And then what's the biggest difference between being an underwriting director, a very senior underwriter, and what you do today where you're sort of almost sort of underwriting these ideas or you're kind of helping turn these ideas into insurance ideas? Maybe some of the parts of the job are quite similar. Maybe they're not. Anyway, I'd love you to talk me through this transformation you've been through. So if I answer that question in reverse, Mark, the biggest difference is I have time to do today what I wanted to do when I worked within insurance. Insurance executive underwriters, they are permanently distracted by their day job. And yet the vast majority of people who work in insurance would acknowledge that the product they're providing to their customers is not the greatest product is not particularly efficient, and it's not often a particularly great customer experience. But changing that takes a lot of time and energy and money, frankly, which is really difficult to come by. All three of those things, difficult to come by within an insurance company. So what I do now is essentially with the help of our team and with the help of our investors, is we're able to provide those necessary ingredients in an environment that allows that innovation and incubation to happen. So we have the time to find the good ideas, 
to invest in those ideas, to help them build and put up a good framework around those ideas, and then to go to the insurers as the necessarily enablers to get these ideas off the ground. So the insurers can have relatively light touch where we have the time and the energy and the resources to help these companies grow permanently. So you're almost more of a broker than you are an underwriter. Well, you're sort of doing the underwriting on the front end, but then you have to go and broke it out to some of the potential paper providers out the back, do you? I don't think it was broking because I think any insurer in their right mind presented with some of the opportunities we have naturally lapped them up. So if you've got an insurer who has an appetite to underwrite that class of business, they naturally will want to do it. Maybe it is a broking thing where you're matchmaking the right ideas with the right underwriters. But for me, it's fun. It's worthwhile. I feel like we're making a difference. And I'm simply recycling my 30 years of knowledge and relationship. You've alluded to this before with the first fund, you know, you had to go and find these ideas. Now you're saying hopefully more of them are coming knocking on your door because you were well, well established. But also as a former underwriter, where those ideas were being presented to you by brokers every day and you could say yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Whereas now having to go out and become more like a sort of treasure hunter, truffle hunter to find these special and rare, exciting things. Was that a big change? The ideas that we're dealing with are very embryonic when we see them and they're not presentable at that first stage to go and speak to an underwriter. What we do is take that very embryonic idea and beat it into a proper shape with the founders that we can then take to an underwriter and say, we can prove the metrics, the underwriting, you know, and frankly, those insurance metrics as much as anything else are the things the underwriter is going to be interested in. And we can evidence that there's a real opportunity here to build a scalable business. They're not even diamonds in the rough. They're actually just bits of coal and you have to keep hammering them. And eventually you get a diamond in the rough and then you can polish the diamond later. Yeah, it takes a little bit of time to make it presentable, put it that way. There's no hammering going on here, is there, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're sort of knocking things into shape and knocking off rough edges and polishing it, and then giving them more of an insurance purpose or something that might make sense to the industry, if that's right. And Stephen, you're the opposite. You're an outsider who's come and looked at the insurance world and interacted with the insurance world for six years. How has that changed you? And what have you learned? It's nice to have an outsider's view as well. It's funny, actually, after six years, I wonder how long I can still claim to be an outsider, whether I've been no, born. You're one of us now. You're an insurance person through and through forever now. Is that right? I'm not wearing a pinstripe suit today. <laughs> I mean, I came definitely with preconceptions. If I look back on six years rather than where am I today, I think I expected that the industry would be ready to innovate. And I was expecting to walk into an environment with open arms that they wanted to try some of these amazing new digital toys and tricks and business models that were emerging. My initial experience was quite disappointed that there was an obsession with distribution and not with product. That real innovation was something that, as Richard mentioned earlier, that the industry doesn't give itself time to innovate. And that was new and I guess became the DNA of the gateway model, which was how do we create a space where that time can be given? So I think we built ourselves from that first experience. We designed our model of engagement with the industry, which is sounds like we're going to have to be the place where time is given. But also being from an outsider, I mean, lots of terms, they make me laugh now, where people always ask me, what do you think about embedded? It's the new thing. I mean, embedded was the new thing in TV and content in medicine 20 years ago. I mean, it was the big word. 
So I find it quite amusing that I'm being fed some of the business models that come through the door or the startup ideas were really the same idea I'd seen then, but with insurance in the middle. I recognize a lot of patterns where the new ideas were coming from. But I think that maybe the more exciting thing that's now starting to happen is where even if the insurance market is slow, that real innovators are now coming to the sector. It was a dawning on me about two years ago, I have to be careful of your audience, that I didn't meet many innovators from insurance. Innovation is something that happens to insurance from the outside, that insurers are amazing at responding. It's almost like I wanted to frame every brilliant new idea and founder I found would be say, could you just look beyond all the problems and could you just suspend disbelief just for a moment so we could see that this could have a really big impact with both the industry and to the world at large? And that was the hardest thing to do, was to get that moment. Because I think that the industry is so trained for scale and so trained for iteration. And I wanted to also celebrate that I've never met a group of people who can make things happen once they're clear about what the idea is. And that's phenomenal. I felt like I got keys to a much bigger truck when I got here. What do you mean by trained scale? So if I said to you, we've just had a breakthrough with this risk group. And we've managed to reduce the frequency of claims by 20%. Can you help me distribute it? There would be a queue going out the door <laughs> because everybody knows how to distribute it. If I said to you, I've got this really interesting idea and I think it could change risk, but I'm just not sure we need to try it. Nobody shows up. That's really interesting. So you are that outsider who's been changing insurance? Well, I guess so. I mean, I certainly took it as my responsibility to try and find other outsiders as a team of people from different backgrounds, Richard's background is 15 to 30 years solid, depending on the, as you say, he always looks younger than reality. I'm not sure any of us believe it, who've worked with him, but he brings really open-minded insurance people to the business. And I look to balance that by bringing really inspirational outsiders to the business. And somewhere in the middle, we hope that we can create enough time for some magic to happen. I think what's important for us as a business is that we have that variety of perspectives from different people with different backgrounds. And Stephen particularly is great at reminding us to keep looking in new areas and new spaces to find innovation opportunities. So that's part of the DNA that he brings to our business, which I think those of us who've spent a lifetime working in insurance struggle to do because we're kind of tunnel vision through working in insurance for 30 years. Just talk generally about the investment climate that you're working in. Anyone who's writing about InsurTech today would be saying, oh, well, you know, the funding climate's gone a bit cold, hasn't it? It's all a bit sort of risk off, that sort of growth and excitement is all off and everyone's back down to sort of capital preservation type strategies, etc. Obviously, that's not necessarily true for everybody because at a micro level, of course, you've just raised your second fund, so there can't be a shortage of capital everywhere. But in general, has it affected your strategy at all, this slight change in the weather that we've seen in terms of the funding climate, the readiness of investors to fund new ideas in, in InsurTech? Clearly, that macro environment is going to have an impact on all forms of investing, be it public or private venture or private equity, whatever it is. But depending where you are in that funding cycle, will clearly have a different impact. So the latest stage, I mean, the public insurtech companies have been absolutely crucified and in many cases, justifiably so. Some of the latest stage privately funded insurtechs equally, you know, have found themselves doing down rounds and short of funding 
perhaps because the earlier rounds that they achieved were at slightly over-exuberant prices. So that's inevitable. For us at seed stage, it hasn't had a material impact. Our companies are still getting funded, and we believe that's because we have concentrated on the things that really matter for our companies. So insurance metrics like loss ratios, for instance, you know, fundamentally, we believe those are the most important metrics to concentrate on, even at an early stage. It's important that your product can make money. Revenue in insurance is useless if it's sold at a loss. But maybe there are some differences to our investing approach in the businesses we're investing, and that really just reflects the cautiousness of the wider venture market. So ensuring that our portfolio companies have adequate runway to achieve the necessary milestones for the next round. So we're probably taking a more cautious approach there, ensuring that the founders understand what they need to achieve before they get to the next round. Because you said before, some of those rounds, maybe for a couple of years ago, were a bit over-exuberant. So was it partly our own fault that we got over-exuberant? With hindsight, was there a bit of an insurtech bubble, perhaps at that late stage? I think it's just insurtech. It was everywhere. Well, certainly everywhere in venture, and inevitably so in one of those sort of bubbles, insurtech got dragged along with it, and that's definitely the case. I think there were some, we would call tourists in the market, so wider sector agnostic funds who wanted to get some exposure to InsurTech who came in and perhaps didn't understand some of the insurance-specific subtleties of investing in InsurTechs. But yeah, absolutely. I don't know whether you feel the same, Richard, but I didn't get the sense that InsurTechs were driving valuations. I got the sense that VCs were driving valuations. Yeah, absolutely. It's the investors who drive the valuations, just, but in some of the later rounds have definitely got quite enthusiastic. They were just outbidding each other and it all exactly. yeah. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. That returning to a more rational, sane funding process can only be good in the long run, not just for the investors, but equally for the portfolio companies as well. So to go back to an insurance analogy, if we're in a slightly harder market for uh, insurtech funding, you've got capital, capital insurance supply than it was, does it make it easier for you to operate now? Do you get a better showing of things because everyone knows that you are funded and you are specialists and you will look at insurtech ideas? I think it's easier for us to get the bandwidth from our insurance partners if they're not being distracted by a load of companies that should never have been funded. And so having a smaller pond, if you like, of insurtechs to distract insurers is probably a good thing. I don't know if you saw today, our inbound deal flow is up 20% the last two months. So there's something going on to your point as well, I think, that the pool may be smaller, but I think that people are finding us. People are finding us now, and that's got to be a good thing. Well, I'm going to ask you, in this sort of six or seven years into what we call insurtech, and you being a pioneer of that, now that insurtech exists, obviously, if seven years ago it didn't exist, there was probably fintech and there was obviously tech. Do you find that the people knocking on your door with new ideas are better informed, are more mature, more likely to know what a loss ratio is than they were seven years ago? I presume yes, or is that really not the case? Are they just better quality? You've got a smaller pond of slightly higher quality people to pick from. I think the worm is still turning on that. I mean, I don't know about your impression, Richard, but I had a view that we just went through a flurry of naive ideas coming through the door, that it was a sort of a hangover from the hype of insure tech rounds, that playing through. 
And I think we're only just starting to see that pass and some slightly smarter, more risk-focused, more from founders who have done a bit more homework are starting to appear. I certainly think there were some Me Too companies that got funded or were running around, which really were trying to replicate somebody else's idea in a new space. So they thought there was lots of opportunity and investors were happy to fund them because they missed out on the first company and they wanted to get on to the next one. So as Stephen said, yeah, some of those were maybe not the highest quality of founder or the most well thought out of business plans, but more, look, we're just going to do what that guy over there has done. So this is the best part of the show for me. I want to ask you what's getting you excited right now. What sort of things you've been working on, hopefully investing in, that are really floating your boat? You know, tell us about these new innovations that will be coming down the track. I think the space of climate tech is still a bit opaque and, and there's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of a new urgency in some of these ideas that we called NatCat a few years ago. Yeah. And it's now evolving into more complex solutions. And I think we're trying to keep up with that. And we're seeing a lot of new ideas coming through the door to say, you seem to be interested in this kind of evolution of climate resilience business models. And long may that continue because it's real problems, as Richard said before. The number of events we're asked to participate in discussion groups around the convergence of insurance and climate, we could fill our calendar. Yeah. Nonstop, all of us could be in a discussion about it. I mean, I can only hope that that's going to materialize into a bit more action soon. But we are seeing something. We, we can tell you about a couple of new investments. But I think the coalface of where ideas and founders are starting to emerge are people who are recognizing that insurance and climate could work together and they're just trying to piece it. Obviously, you've been involved in something with carbon, carbon neutral journeys and helping insurance products to help validate that and to help accelerate that and sort of ESG related stuff. I presume you're going to be seeing lots more of those. And ESG obviously has completely exploded. And we've finally had some ESG reality checks, for example, we had the recent news that the Munich Re Syndicate, well, formerly the Watkins Syndicate, which was only really known for insuring oil and gas, has announced they're not going to insure oil and gas from the 1st of January. It's a bit like direct line saying they're not going to do car insurance anymore. If that's a reality check for everybody in the market, I think to say, well, what are we doing? Well, this is actually really quite interesting. Something that's not for the compliance department, it's actually for, for everybody. It's existential for some people. And with that comes a, a new requirement there, doesn't it, of the alternative sources? Yeah. So how are we going to accelerate the adoption of wind electrification we're going to have to do that in parallel and we're going to have to wake up to that to make those kinds of statements that we're going to discontinue the old. We must accelerate the new. Yeah. What was the company you invested in? It's helping to validate some of that carbon. We're invested in a company called Kita. Kita, that was it. And Kita is enabling that carbon removal industry. So where companies or individuals are buying carbon credits, there is a risk that those carbon credits are never delivered. By ensuring that, that risk of non-delivery, you improve the quality of that carbon credit, both by ensuring a level of diligence on it in the first place, and then obviously the financial risk transfer element to it. So it is an important and worthwhile and of course, very, very large and growing white space. But it could just be a forest planted to capture carbon, and then the forest burns down in a wildfire, right? It can burn down. It can get eaten by deer. 
<laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. There's endless things that can well, go wrong. Drought, to that. Yeah, there can be a drought. There can be a storm. Pestilence, you know. So again, it's insurance, but again, applying insurance in a really interesting way that's helping to enable more carbon capture to happen. Absolutely. So again, it's that multiplier effect of allowing right. the finance to finance more than they would otherwise do if there wasn't insurance there. That's the origins of insurance, right? If you go back to marine insurance, that's what it did then. It was by insuring these transits and these ships, it enabled ship owners to own more ships. Yep. And for trade and industry to grow. And that's exactly what we're doing here with Keta in the carbon industry. Yeah, it's just making people's capital go further because you've got the insurance capital helping Absolutely. out as well. Anything else you've been getting excited about? I think there are indirect ways of looking at carbon. Carbon's definitely the theme. Is that the overriding theme of most of the things that we're walking through the door then? In one way, carbon, climate, all these things being connected it's, it's to ESG. It's one big theme that we're particularly interested in and we think is very worthwhile and important, but certainly not the only one. We're invested recently in a company called Chai Predict that looks at supply chain price volatility. So it both looks to predict and help purchases of raw materials, so large corporates essentially in that supply chain, analyze and understand their supply chain risk, and then ultimately to transfer some of that risk as well. So again, drives efficiency in supply chain, improves capital allocations, and enables companies to have a more consistent and profitable product. So this is things like somebody who buys a lot of gas, for example, are they ceramics? maker uses lots of gas for their ovens to make ceramics that wouldn't, that that wouldn't that would, be, that would that the example i would choose but yes maybe a better example would be a toblerone so you have in their cardboard you have aluminium you have cocoa well, I hope there's uh, cocoa. It doesn't sound very appetizing. And managing that supply risk for all of those products simultaneously talk about timely I mean, yeah, I thought was how many responded with, with something like gas or, you know, some of these heavy raw materials, also, which have been through massive gyrations in the last 12 months. Mm. But explain more about that business. What do they do and what parts are they insuring and what parts are they advising? So they started building models using AI to predict price volatility and movements in the future. And they have a long list of customers who pay for those services. So whilst that helps them understand their risk, it doesn't get rid of that residual risk, which is clearly the price can move violently, particularly for following unpredictable events, be that in the energy space, the invasion of Ukraine or people blowing up pipelines in the Baltic. So that residual risk they can then transfer. And the idea is to provide as many simultaneous raw material indices and risk transfer opportunities for those customers simultaneously. So sort of parametric type? Absolutely, parametric. And again, parametric, is that a big feature? Obviously, you've been uh, early adopters and supporters of parametric. It's interesting. While Richard was speaking just now, I was continually reminded that quite often the conversation that the founders obsess, like the Chai founders obsess, is not how to explain the insurance product to an insurer, it's how to explain it to their customer. So should I say, lovely, simple insurance models like parametric that feel like beautiful risk transfer. We're supporting businesses in many other fields. Obviously, you're familiar with the flood flash. Absolutely. This is where we really got first immersed in this, no pun intended. 
And that's a common theme, I think, as a model that founders like to borrow. And also one of the common challenges, because every time they come up against a customer, the customer doesn't get it and doesn't have the time to be taught it. And the InsureTech's biggest hurdle is actually trying to find a way to get it softly adopted by its customer. And they often find themselves going to a very educated buyer, a head of risk. Yeah. You think of how many businesses in the world have got a head of risk. Not that many. And that really reduces the addressable market. And it's their ability to then move from that head of risk to somebody who just gets it. It's a sensible way of managing their business. Yeah. I think the flood flash is great because I could show it to my dad and he'd get it. That's important, isn't it? Well, that wonderful thing of hand your dad a stick and say, where do you want to put it? <laughs> it stops being a, a piece of insurance theory and starts to become a physical thing that we can all relate to. Yes. I think that's one of the joys of that model. Someone walks in with some more widgets and gadgets and those sort of things that you'd be quite keen on those because they're well, things that sort of, yeah, just make it so much easier to comprehend the concept. Because otherwise you have to spend millions of dollars on capturing a customer. Well, educating you're never going to make any money. Yeah, way, educating a market is venture capital 101. Just don't do it. <laughs> just don't go there. If the market is pulling and has a need and you don't have to explain it, then you're away. Otherwise you spend years explaining. That's brilliant. Well, it sounds like you've learned an awful lot and you already knew a lot before you started. So I wish you all the best with fund number two. And I hope we'll be having lots of check-ins and waypoints along the way, because I'm sure there'll be lots of interesting investments and lots of interesting news along the way. And I just thanks you so much, both of you, for coming on the show. Thank, Thank you, you very much indeed, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>